you can open your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, that's the, the second book of your Bible, uh, and we're going to read from that in just a few moments, so you have some time to find it. It will be on the screen behind me, and if you want to use your phone app, that's great uh, as well um, to get to Exodus chapter 20. I, I'm curious this morning, as we all gather on this Father's Day, dads, happy Father's Day to you. Um, where, where do you find yourself this morning? I want you to take a moment and ask that question. Where, where do I find myself this morning? Not in the physical sense, yes, you're at Herndon Middle School in the auditorium, but where's your soul this morning? Do you find yourself in an encouraged place? Do you find yourself in a frustrated place? Do you find yourself in a place where you are waiting on God to do something and you're getting tired of waiting on him? Do you find yourself in a place where maybe your faith is starting to grow weak? Your faith in God's word and your faith in God's ways are starting to dim because you need God to act on something and he's not doing it or at least you can't see it. Where do you find yourself this morning? As you know, two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series called For Your Joy. And this is a sermon series on the Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus chapter 20. And my heart and my prayer and hope for you as we walk through the Ten Commandments throughout the summer is that you would be convinced, like I'm praying that the Spirit of God does this inside your heart, that you would be convinced that every single one of God's commands are for your joy. That every single one of God's commands are His caring about you and your life and you flourishing I pray that you would be convinced that, that all of God's commands and in all of his ways and all of his word is given to you in love. We know that God's character from scripture is the definition of love, that God is love. And so everything he says and everything he does is for your good, for your joy, because he loves you. And, and I hope as we dig into the commands and continue to do that, That no matter where you find yourself this morning, that the Spirit of God would do something in you that convinces you that he really is after my joy, even when I can't understand how. God proves this to us in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. If you remember, two weeks ago, we started this. We studied the first commandment. But we started in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, these kind of introductory verses to the Ten Commandments. And what does God say to us? He says, listen, I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God. I am your God. And what does he say? Who rescued you out of slavery from Egypt. And so what we know from the beginning before we get any commands is that God acts towards us in love for our joy, for our good, before he ever gives us commands. 
Exodus 20, I rescued you from slavery, right? Ten plagues. I broke the hand of Pharaoh. I led you out of there. I parted the Red Sea. I protected you in the wilderness. And now they're all gathered at this place called Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 after God had just rescued them in the most dramatic of ways. And now he's ready to give them commands. Take note that God didn't give commands in Egypt. He didn't say, listen, I need y'all to do these 10 things, and then I'll lead you out. He led them out, and he said, here is how I'm calling upon you to live, and it's for your joy, it's for your good. I've proven that to you. And so it's in that context that we study the Ten Commandments. So two weeks ago, we started with the first one, where God says, you shouldn't have any other gods before me. And we said, this command, it's the most important one, because really, you can't follow any of God's commands without first following the first command. Because the first command deals with the heart. It deals with, do we trust that God is good? Do we trust that he's righteous? Do do we trust that he is the one who's able to determine what is good and not good and beautiful and right and true and moral? Do we give God the place of God in our life or do we trust other things in the place of God? And that's what we talked about two weeks ago. But this morning we're going to go to the second commandment here in Exodus chapter 20. So we'll be in Exodus 24 to 6, verses 4 to 6. And as we read it, I think the immediate challenge before us is going to be this. What does this look like for me? I I, I don't really struggle with the literal things that I'm reading about here uh, in Exodus 24 to 6. So how does this apply to my life? So let's read it and then we'll understand what I mean by that. Exodus 24 to 6, here's the second commandment. God says this to Israel and to us. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what what does this have to do with us? Okay, we could go straight literal. Okay, guys, don't carve statues of things and bow down to it, all right? If you haven't done that in the last week, great, just don't do it. Well, okay, in our culture, in our society, this isn't really a common practice, all right? So so what does this mean for us? And here's my even greater question is, why is this command for my joy? Why is this command for my good and for my flourishing? And so I think the the best way to wrap our minds and hearts around the second commandment and what it means for us is let's go study an incident where Israel blatantly violated the second commandment. And let's see what was going on there and what happened. And so that's you're going to find that in Exodus 32. So if you hang a right in your Bible, just about 12 chapters, you're going to come to Exodus 32. And this is 
as you'll see, a pretty flagrant violation of the second commandment. But I think it's going to help us to understand what is the heart behind this commandment. And so Exodus 32, let me give you a quick context, then we'll read it. Uh, So Israel is still at Mount Sinai. So in Exodus 20, uh, God gives the Ten Commandments, and then uh, Moses goes right on up the mountain. He's at the top of Mount Sinai. Now he is receiving the law from God. Now, so in addition to the Ten Commandments, and this is a lot of things, like he's getting building plans for the tabernacle and like decoration plans for the tabernacle and what the priest should wear. I mean, it's a lot. And so Moses is up there with God, writing down a lot, receiving the law, and Israel is down at the base of the mountain and their leader has been gone for a really long time. And so they're starting to get nervous in the wilderness. They're in a place camping out that they've never been before. They know there's hostile nations all around. And so their leader has been gone. Who's, this is the guy that God's been leading and talking to. All right. So we haven't seen him in several days. And so there's fear starting to set in that maybe something happened to Moses. And if something happened to Moses, that's not good for us because God talks to him. Right. And so they're, they're starting to get anxious. And I think it's easy in this uh, chapter uh, to, to kind of uh, look at the Israelites and be like, what are you guys doing, right? Well, I think all of us would get nervous if our leader who God talks to, we hadn't seen him in a while, and he went up into this mountain all by himself, you know, maybe a mountain lion, if those exist in Egypt, work, uh, got him or something, right? So this is the context of Exodus 32. All right, let me read verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, right? Where where is this guy? The people gathered themselves together. So this is all of Israel to Aaron, one of their other leaders, kind of the number two guy in charge and said to him up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, very specific language, and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Wow. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And we talked about this last week. If you look in your Bible, Lord, L-O-R-D, that's all caps in your English Bible. That's your Bible telling you that the word Yahweh, the name of God, is there. So they're confused. They're, they're starting to blend all kinds of different worldviews and stuff together. Verse 6, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Pretty, pretty obvious violation of the second commandment here. But what's going on? What's going on with Israel? In the midst 
of their impatience? Where's Moses? In the midst of their anxiety, did something happen to Moses? We're in the wilderness all by ourselves. What do we do? In the midst of all of those things, they lost trust in God and their hearts reverted to what they saw the secular culture around them, what they would do in a circumstance like this. So they just came from Egypt, which they lived for a long time. And Egypt had its own religious culture and its own way of worshiping and their gods that they worshiped. And so in the midst of their anxiety and impatience, they reverted away from what God said to do to what they saw other people to do in this particular circumstance. You know, this is one of those uh, passages that the Uh, makes my job easy as a uh, preacher because someone preached on it first in the Bible. So Stephen, when he gave his uh, sermon in the book of Acts chapter 7, he preached on this specific circumstance. So look at Acts 7, 39 to 41. I'll just toss it up on the screen real quick. This is Stephen preaching. And he says, our fathers refused to obey him, that's Moses, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, look at this, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He just quoted Exodus 32. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And so what we know from Acts is that what was happening in the hearts of the people in Exodus 32 is they reverted back to Egypt. Instead of worshiping God in the way that God told them to worship him, they remembered how they did it back in Egypt, and they would carve idols and worship it. And so that, that's exactly what they did. So the question for us is, how do we relate with this? As people who, my guess is we don't struggle with carving idols out of gold and worshiping it. How do we relate with this? Well, I believe that Exodus 32 and then the interpretation that we also get from Acts 7, appreciate that, Stephen. I think what they do is they help us to understand this about the second commandment. I'm going to put this on the screen for you. To understand this about the second commandment, we violate the second commandment when we allow our impatience and or our anxiety to give us permission to amend God's word and God's ways. Let me say that again. We violate the second commandment when we allow our impatience and or our anxiety to give us permission to amend God's word and God's ways. In in other words, I give myself permission when I feel tension in my heart, when God's not showing up in the way that I think he should show up, or when something's going on and I, I can't wrap my head around it, I give myself the permission and I give myself the authority to no longer bear the image of God and reflect who God is to the world, but to literally carve out for myself an image of God that I think should be. See that? When the impatience of my heart or the anxiety of my heart wells up, I I give myself permission instead of trusting in God's word and trusting in in his ways and, 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 and waiting upon him, even when I don't understand, I give myself permission to carve out a different God who's going to answer for me the longings of my heart. 
who's going to provide for me the things that I think God should provide for me. This is exactly what happened in Exodus chapter 32. How quickly we forget the faithfulness of God. They just walked out of Egypt. They just saw 10 plagues. They just saw the Red Sea part in two and they walked on dry ground and it crashed over the Egyptian army. They saw God lead them through the wilderness and miraculously provide for them. God had done all of these things and how quickly we forget the things that God has done for us. And then they looked at the world around them for something different because God wasn't showing up in the way that they felt God should show up in that moment. God wasn't doing the things that they wanted in that moment. And so they carved out for themselves a new God that would satisfy the longings of their heart. And I believe we do this in so many subtle ways. When the impatience of our heart or the anxiety of our heart begins to well up, we begin to wonder, I wonder if God is different than what I've always believed. You know, maybe you grew up in the church, kind of always accepted the things of the Bible and the things that you were taught and maybe the, parent, the things that your parents taught you. But then you start reading the Bible and you start seeing some things differently. You start reading some things that disturb you. You start having some maybe theological questions about God and you're trying to wrap your heart around these questions. And so what's happening is some anxiety is being produced in your heart because you're starting to question things you've never been allowed to question. Maybe some impatience is growing in your heart because you want to follow God and you want to believe in the Bible, but you've got all of these questions. And what can happen in that moment is we can be tempted. What would soothe my heart in this moment is if I carved out something slightly different that answered my questions. Or maybe we have relational tension going on in our life, right? A longing for a spouse, a good longing for a spouse, right? A a longing for a different spouse. And that relational tension is starting to grow, right? The anxiety, the impatience, right? And so what can happen is instead of waiting on God, instead of looking at his word and, and seeing the things that he says and 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 what he's asking me to do is to to be long-suffering and to wait and to trust him and, and to follow his word. But what if I carved out something different? What if his word said something slightly different? That could soothe what's going on inside of me. It could be the same things of questions of identity and and sexuality. I have these feelings going on inside of me. And everybody around me is saying, you just give in to everything that you feel. That's the most true thing about you. But I'm seeing something different in God's word. And so now there's this anxiety all wrought inside of my heart. And I could carve out something different. And it would soothe what's going on inside of me. 
It could be financial struggles and desires. It it could be conflict that you're having between other people. And and God stipulates ways to deal with conflict, to to go to each other one-on-one, to give each other the benefit of the doubt, right? To not be wise in your own eyes. We just did a whole series on this in Romans 12, if you remember. God has given us ways on how we relate and reconcile and, and live peaceably with one another. But sometimes that means we have to do hard things. And conflict can elevate tension in my heart. And I don't want to quite do it God's way. So what if I just carved out something a little different? It would soothe that anxiety. I think about people who are under oppression or injustice. What a scenario that you could be in. I mean, rot with impatience. God, when are you going to show up? God, when are you going to act justly on our behalf? Anxiety, because it seems like everyone's against you. What a scenario to where we're, our faith is being tested. Do I trust in God and who he is? Or am I going to amend God's word and God's ways? As you know, today's Juneteenth. It's the day that we celebrate the last uh, slaves being freed in Texas in 1865. But even as we think about our nation's struggle with this, all the way to the civil rights era, one of the things that we saw in the civil rights era, especially under Martin Luther King, is his commitment to fight for justice, but doing it the right way. Doing it peaceably. One of my favorite Martin Luther King quotes is this. uh, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right temporarily defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. And I think that as the church, as we're walking into a post-Christian era, as we're going to begin to see increased hostility and increased persecution to the things that we believe, we're going to need to take a page out of their playbook. Because it's so tempting in the midst of the impatience and anxiety of persecution to amend God's word and God's ways and say, we're going to respond in like kind. It's not, I, I, keep, I see this all over the place right now. Pastors or different church leaders saying in response to increased hostilities to what we believe, now's the time to play hardball. I didn't read that in scripture. I think it's a violation of the second amendment when we trust that, or instead, instead of trusting in God and his words and his ways and responding and trusting in his sovereignty and being gentle and loving our neighbor and turning the cheek and serving and representing his kingdom and doing all of the things that we studied in Romans 12, we give ourselves permission to amend that because things have gotten hard. We now must demand our rights. We now must respond in kind and punch back, right, in these things. It's a violation of the second commandment. Maybe I could carve out a different way that would soothe my anxiety or my impatience of what's going on around me. We violate the second commandment when we allow our impatience or anxiety or our desires or fill in the blank, but when we allow those things to give us permission to amend God's word and God's ways. So let me return to my question in the beginning. Where do you find yourself this morning? What are those places in your heart and your life where you're feeling that temptation? You're feeling that anxiety. 
you're feeling that frustration with God. God, why aren't you acting in the way that I think that you should or the thing that it, it makes most sense to me? God, why aren't you answering my prayers? God, why are you allowing this suffering? Why did you allow this death to occur? Why are you allowing any of these things to happen? Where do you find yourself this morning? What I want us to do from Scripture, I, just, I want to give you three encouragements about this this morning from Scripture. Just three quick things as we wrestle with this reality. Here's the first thing. First is, I, I just want you to know, and we'll look at this in the Scripture, I want you to know that the ways of the world, when we're tempted to look to the world to figure out what image to carve out, the ways of the world will always twist what you believe about God and what you believe about yourself. The ways of the world will always twist what you believe about God and what you believe about yourself. We saw this in Exodus 32. When the Israelites looked to what Egypt did in times of distress, they carved out a statue and they danced in front of it. And that's what they did. If you look at Exodus 32, verse 6, it says, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. So they're worshiping this calf like they would worship God. Then it says, and the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. Now, what's interesting about this word play here in your Bible is that that Hebrew word has really sexual overtones to it. Every other time we see it used in the Bible, it's used in a sexual way. And so what many commentators believe is that there were kind of sexual cult practices going on to this worship to the golden calf. What? And so what happens is the ways of the world, they're going to start to twist what you believe about God and believe about yourself. And so all of a sudden, their whole worldview about God and his character has been twisted. They now see God as this deity that you please, that you somehow garner its favor by doing things like cultish practices, dancing and singing and, and doing these things. And somehow that garners his favor. That's not the God of the Bible. We saw the character of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is love. He acts on our best interest, right? He comes to save us before he even commands us to do anything. The God of the Bible does not demand us dance in front of him so that he, we can have his favor. The God of the Bible acts in love. And then we view our, they're viewing themselves in like this way where like, I have the ability to manipulate God. No, the Bible tells us that every single one of us are lost in our sin and we need God's love and grace to be saved. That there's nothing that we could do to manipulate or change God's mind or to somehow garner his favor. So they've taken their theology and just tossed it straight out the window, viewing God completely differently. And over time, if we allow the ways of the world to give us the permission to amend God's word and God's ways, to carve out that different image, what's going to happen is we'll find our morality decline and our joy will decline. Because the ways of the world will twist what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. But number two is this as well, Second thing I just want to encourage you with is that the ways of the Lord will not soothe your heart. The ways of the world will not soothe your heart. The temptation is if I could just carve out just a different image of what God looks like, then that will soothe the anxiety and impatience of my heart, and it's a lie. I love Jeremiah chapter 10. 
I'll just throw this on the screen for you. Jeremiah is warning Judah right now. Hey, if you keep worshiping idols, violating the second commandment, God's going to send in a, a foreign nation, which would be the Babylonians, to drive you out of the promised land. And so Jeremiah is warning them because Judah was producing these idols. And look at what Jeremiah says in, in chapter 10, verse 1 to 5. He says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples, all the, the other nations, right, uh, apart from Israel, for the customs of the peoples are vanity, a tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hand of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Every time we carve out a new image and amend God's word in God's ways, it's like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. It's worthless. It doesn't do anything. It looks weird. It's just wood and some paint to make it look nice. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. The ways of the world will not soothe your heart. And the temptation is for us to look to the world and think, man, it looks like they're finding all of the answers, right? I love Psalm 73. I won't read it for you, but Psalm 73, the psalmist looks to the world. He goes, they're just prospering. They're rich. They seem happy. Like, God, what's going on here? And then he goes to God's word, he goes into the sanctuary, and he realizes their fate. He realizes, no, they aren't really happy. They're actually under the judgment of God is what they are. One of the things that we have to learn is that it's so tempting to look to the ways of the world and to try it out, to carve out something new for us, to see if it will work. And what we'll realize is that nothing is going to satisfy the longings of our heart because we were made to be satisfied by God and to wait upon him. This is why I'm so thankful for the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prays in that garden before he goes to the cross. I'm so thankful for it because you have Jesus in his humanity praying to God, anxious, right? The, the text tells us he was anxious because he knows what's about to happen in the next few hours. And he prays to God, God, if there's any other way, there's a temptation, there's a desire to amend the way. But he was willing to trust God and move forward to the cross because he knew that God's way is good and it's right and it's for our joy and it's for our good. And he walked right into it. And so I love this account in Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus knows a, a way apart from God as Father is not going to soothe his heart. It's not going to do any good. It's basically a scarecrow in a cucumber field. And so let's trust God even in the midst of the hardship and the suffering and the pain, knowing that he is good. And we know that God is good 
Because after that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus does go straight to the cross. And he carries with himself our sin. And he goes to the cross and he pays the penalty for our sin and he gives us his righteousness so that we know, we know without a shadow of a doubt that God is for us even when things are hard. Ways of the world will not soothe our hearts. Number three, last encouragement I want to give you is this, is God is a jealous God. And he's jealous for you and he's jealous for those that you care for. If you look in Exodus 20, verses four to six, five to six, actually. After the second commandment, it says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's a lot of ink spilled over what God means by this. But God's a jealous God. And this is a jealous love is what this is. He knows that if you go after another God or try to carve out a different God altogether, that it's not going to be for your joy. And so he's jealous for you. He's jealous for your joy. He's jealous for the glory that you will give to him. He's jealous for you and he's jealous for your children. And so scholars debate, what does this mean? Is this direct punishment from God that he directly punishes future generations based off your faithfulness? Or is this just kind of more of an apple that doesn't fall far away from the tree type of thing? That in your unfaithfulness, you'll teach your children to be unfaithful and so forth. And I think it's probably a little bit of both. I really don't know. But here's what I do know about this, is that if when it comes to our children and the people under our leadership, anyone who looks up to us as some sort of authority figure, we will teach them to have wandering, impatient, anxious hearts if we demonstrate a faith that constantly ebbs and flows according to our feelings and our emotions. If every time we have some impatience or some anxiety or a hardship, we kind of change our view of God or amend God's word and God's ways, we will teach those under us to do the same. But the flip side is true as well. If we trust God in the midst of the hardship and in the midst of the impatience and anxiety, we will teach our kids too that God is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that God is trustworthy even through the ebbs and flows of life because they'll see you walk through it faithfully. We need to believe and teach those under our care that our feelings do not change God's word or God's ways, that he's steady. He is steady in the midst of our impatience and anxiety, even when we can't see it. But here's the worst thing that we can do, absolute worst thing that we can do, is believe for ourselves and especially teach others like the kids underneath our care the worst thing we can do is believe for ourselves or teach them that our feelings don't matter. This is what we do in the church. We either go, feelings don't matter, God's word is steady in the midst of them, amen, so ignore them, stuff them. Or we go over here and we're like, man, feelings are everything. And so, man, just do, you do you, you do your truth. Whatever you feel is right, go for it. And we kind of have no boundary over who God is and what his word says. But both are unfaithful. 
The God of the Bible cares about the things that you feel. And so the, the question I need to answer for us as we take this to a close is this. How do we follow the second commandment? What does that look like? How do I build a patient, trusting heart in the midst of the impatience, in the midst of the anxiety, in the midst of the ebbs and flows of my life? And what you have to do is you have to pay attention to what is going on inside of you. Your feelings. They are the very things that are pointing you to where you are tempted to carve out something different. They are the very thing that are pointing you to where you're struggling and need to be encouraged. If we stuff them, if we say they don't matter, then we are not setting ourselves up for a life of building a heart that trusts God in the midst of everything. We must pay attention to what we're feeling. We must pay attention to what is going on inside of us. So how do we do that? Three quick questions real fast, that we learned two weeks ago. This is how we do it. We have three questions that we have to ask in community with brothers and sisters in Christ who love us, who know our story, who are for us. We can't ask these questions in isolation. This is in community, all right? No caveats there. In community, we need to ask the question, what is going on inside of me? What's going on inside of me? Where am I feeling impatience? Where am I feeling anxiety? Where am I feeling frustrated? We gotta verbalize that. We gotta legitimize that. We gotta bring that out and say, this is what's going on inside of me. Because if you ignore it, it will dominate you. So what's going on inside of me? Question two, what does God's word say? Man, I'm... I'm, I'm Moses, like, where'd he go? What if he's dead? Hey, God told us to stay here. Look at everything that God has done for us. He's trustworthy. God told us to stay here. Yeah, but what if Moses is dead? In community, we got to do the same. What's going on in me? And what does God's word say? You need each other for that. Because when we're in the midst of anxiety, we're not good at figuring out what God's word says. And you're not meant to do that alone. It's not good for you to be alone. And so what is going on inside of me? What does God's word say? And then what does it look like to wait on God? The third question. What does it look like to wait on God? What does it look like to let God prove that he's a good steward of my joy? The three questions we gotta ask in community. This is how we follow the second commandment. Got to do this with one another. What's happening? What does God's word say? And what does it look like to wait on God? And if we try to do that alone, the temptation to carve out something new will be too much to bear. We're not strong enough on our own to do this. It's also why we have to come to the table often before us. Because the table before us is a reminder that God is for our joy, even when we can't see it. That God has rescued us, that he has purchased for himself, us, as his children through the blood of Jesus. When we come to the communion table, we realize that we are coming to a place, not because we need to be cleansed, but because we already are cleansed. 
And so therefore, God and his church is a safe place to be able to figure out what's going on inside, how do, what does God's word say, and how do I wait on God? And so here's where I want to lead us to go, because I'm out of time, way out of time. Here's where I want us to go this morning. Is I just want us to take a few moments, just quietly. In the band, if you guys want to come up, you can. And just, I, I want you to silently ask yourself, Hey, where do I find myself today? Where do I find myself the temptation to carve out something new? To break the first commandment. And what does the table that's before us say? It says that God is for you. He's for your joy. He has purchased you by the blood of Jesus. And you can wait on him. You can let things play out. He's trustworthy in the long run. And so I'm just going to pray for us right now. And what I want you to do is I want you to take a few moments silently to yourself. And I want you to examine yourself. Ask those questions. Pray to God. If there's something specific on your heart that the Spirit is putting on you, just pray about that. And then I want you to come forward. And I want you to take the bread. And I want you to take the cup. And I want you to realize and I want you to remember that God is for you, and you can trust him in the midst of whatever it is or wherever you find yourself this morning. Let me pray. God, we're just thankful for your word. We're thankful that you're for our joy. We're thankful, God, that no matter what is happening in our lives right now, that you are trustworthy. Sometimes we have to wait a long time to understand, God, what you're up to and what you're doing. But I pray, God, that you would encourage us to know that you are trustworthy in the midst of it. And that anywhere else we go in the world, it's not going to soothe our hearts. It's only going to twist what we believe about you and what we believe about ourselves. God, help us to be a church community that encourages one another to trust in you in all circumstances. And I pray as we come forward to the table, we would be reminded of your steadfast love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a few moments. Where do you find yourself? And when you're ready, you can come forward and take of the elements.